Hello, I am Boyan First, and you are listening to Rural Roots, a Harris Center show that asks what is rural in the 21st century. Here at the Harris Center, like everybody else, we had to reinvent everything we do because of the COVID-19 pandemic. We have been lucky and diligent here in Newfoundland and Labrador and have kept the pandemic mostly in check. However, that meant that our regional development programs and the research we support needed to change. Everything about it needed to change. Our flagship regional development program is called the Thriving Regions Partnership Process. In a nutshell, we work with the regions across the province to help them determine some priorities, we help them build some research partnerships, and we have a little bit of money to fund three year-long research projects in every region we go to. The Bacalou Trail region has about 70 communities, and it's nestled on a peninsula between Conception and Trinity Bays. Before COVID, we had a large town hall session with the community, and one of the priorities they decided on as a key to their development was tourism. Two research projects that emerged from that theme are not what you would expect. Our two guests are going to tell you all about it. You will hear from Del Jarvis, Intangible Cultural Heritage Officer for the province and Research Associate at the Folklore Department at Memorial University, and Natalie Dignam, a researcher and a broadcaster based in St. John's. My project is the Bacaloo Trail Traditional Knowledge Inventory. And the idea was that we would have conversations with people along the Bacaloo Trail and find those people who had traditional skills and knowledge uh, who were willing to be placed on a publicly accessible uh, database of sorts so that if there were tourism operators who were looking to partner tourists with local people who had skills like I don't know, rug making or boat building or bread baking, that they would be able to find these people in the community who would be interested in having a chat and teaching some traditional skills. Very cool. How many people did you find? That is a good question. I think in the end, we had about a dozen communities that participated, and we might get one or two per community. Um, so I think that we are only just scratching the surface of the, the number of people out there who have traditional skills. Um, to a certain extent, I think the number is uh, lower, perhaps because not everyone wants to, uh, to share their knowledge in such a public, a public way. That was definitely one of the challenges with the project. Okay. And Natalie, what about your project? So my project was titled uh, Hidden Gems of the Bacaloo Trail, and it was done in partnership with CHMR um, 93.5, a radio station located out of Memorial University and the Memorial University Folklore Department. So I kind of imagine my project is uh, a bit of the other half of Dale's project. Uh, I was doing a podcast series um, with a, an accompanied visual map and a lot changed because of COVID. Uh, so everything was done remotely, but basically the idea was to find people in the region um, 
doing interesting cultural work or providing interesting uh, heritage experiences in the Bakalu Trail region um, and creating a way to share that information so that people can go and take advantage of all of those uh, cultural and heritage resources. So the way I decided to do that was the podcast series and it aired out of CHMR uh, here in St. John's. Um, you can also go on the ICH blog and read blog posts and listen to the different episodes. So while well, Dale was really um, helping people kind of uh, become, I guess, ready to share their skills, I was finding people who were already doing that and trying to help them uh, just connect with their audience, basically. And a question for both of you. Um, when you talk about Bacalo Trail, what did that mean for you? Because people kind of have their own little geographies of what Bacalo Trail means. Yeah, it, it is one thing that I think people who live in the region don't even have a consistent sense of where it begins and ends. Uh, for our project, we were looking essentially at the area that starts uh, Holyrood or north of Holyrood in Conception Bay and goes all the way up to the, the tip of the of the peninsula up near Greats Cove and then back down to uh, Markland area around uh, uh, Trinity Bay. And Natalie? I found it really interesting working on this project uh, as someone who is not a Newfoundlander. I really conceptualized it by like the peninsula, the land. So I thought, as Dale said, the peninsula that ends with Great's Cove. In my head, I was like, that's the Bacalou Trail. But when I interviewed people, they would describe it based on the two bays. So the bodies of water on either side of the peninsula. So anything that was... Uh, bordering Conception Bay and uh, what's the bay on the other side? Trinity Bay. Trinity Bay was part of that. So that was a really interesting thing for me to chat with people and, and think we're both looking at the same map, but we have totally different ways of like defining what this area is. I, I love that about this province because geography is still so deeply personal. Dale, what surprised you? What surprised me? Uh, I think what surprised me is there are certain skills that we know that exist in the region. Like there's lots of people who bake bread and there's lots of people who know how to, you know, make a hooked mat or something like that. Um, but some of the other skills that came out were um, a little interesting. Like there's one gentleman who is a, a maker of knives and, and a wood carving. And certainly carving is something that is, uh, you know, fairly traditional, but he, he, uh, he's kind of doing it in his own way. Um, mosaic making, which I thought was kind of an interesting or stained glass mosaic kind of work, which was kind of an interesting skill. Uh, there's a, a very excellent stained glass artist in, in New Perlican. Um, so some of those skills are a little bit out of the ordinary, perhaps. They're not things that we might necessarily think of as traditional skills, but there's, um, you know, a, a lot of different ways that people express their creativity. So it was kind of nice to find some of those. Uh, one of the other uh, interesting people that we included in the inventory was a man who makes um, grass basketry, and he's an Indigenous 
uh, craftsperson, but originally from Ontario. And he is kind of preserving his own traditions uh, in Newfoundland uh, that are based from somewhere else and, and using local materials to, uh, to continue this um, tradition that's come from away. That's fascinating. Natalie, what about you? What were some of the um, surprising and uh, delightful points in your research? I think uh, one thing that surprised me, pleasantly surprised me, was that even though I was doing a podcast where, <laughs> because of COVID, I actually couldn't physically go to the place that I was interviewing people about, um, I think it did end up kind of pushing me to make a better episode to help like transport people, hopefully to that region. Uh, I'm just thinking of the, when I interviewed the folks at Brave Code studio, they just did such a beautiful job of describing the land and like the experience of being there. And I had visited there like only a few months before and it was just really lovely to kind of have that experience through audio. And in a way, I was having the experience that I hoped that listeners would have, um, which was being transported to a place through these audio stories and physically not being able to go there myself kind of challenged me to create that. But I think the other thing was that every single person I talked to at the end of the day, uh, no matter what kind of heritage work they're doing or kind of how they viewed themselves were really great storytellers. And um, I think that whatever work you're passionate about, uh, you can learn to become a good storyteller. And when you're talking about something you're excited about, it becomes really easy. So I think people that are doing heritage and cultural work end up, maybe they don't think of themselves that way, but everyone I talked to really was wonderful at framing their own stories. Hmm. Dale, you created a written report that we are going to link to in the episode notes. Were you affected by COVID-19 and how you were able to do that, that work? Yeah, I think like Natalie, the, the big challenge was not being able to get out and travel around and talk to people. And so much of the work that I do is based at the community level, out interacting with people. Um, it, and for a project like this, which is, um, you know, the first time it's been done in the in the region, and and convincing people that they should be, you know, interacting with people, it's it's harder to do when you yourself can't go out and interact with them. Um, I think, you know, the uh, one of the challenges was was certainly not being able to have that face to face uh, contact. Uh, I think as well, um, people often downplay the skills that they have and they think that the things that they do aren't necessarily interesting to other people so when we put out a call uh generally you know through the internet or or through social media for participation in a project like this i i think quite a few people think immediately oh that's not about me because what i do isn't terribly interesting um Whereas when I'm out in the community and I can talk to people who are doing the things with their hands, baking the bread and working in their gardens, I, I think it's easier to convince them that this is, a, you know, a, an interesting thing and something that people from outside of the region would be fascinated to get an insider's view upon. 
So people who read the report, uh, they actually can visit some of those knowledge holders and, uh, inter I mean, have a conversation with them, maybe uh, see how some of those crafts uh, um, and how some of that work is done, right? Yeah, the idea is really that the report is a tool for other business operators in, in, the, in the region. Uh, oftentimes, people who are engaged in, in home-based craft or, or, or traditions in some way, uh, they're not necessarily business people. They're not running these skills as a tourism offering, but there are, are a lot of tourism operators in the province, so like bed and breakfast owners or restaurateurs or uh, tour operators who are looking for these kind of authentic experiences for their clients. So the idea was that the, the inventory is not so much for the general public as it would be for that, um, that group of people that are already engaged in the tourism industry. And one of the things we included in the uh, in the inventory itself were some, some guidelines and suggestions about uh, how maybe to negotiate um, a, a bit of a business interaction. Uh, you know, we, so we encourage you know, bed and breakfast owners who want to hire someone to teach a workshop or have someone come in and teach a skill that they, they really do see that as a, as a business opportunity and a way to put some money back into the hands of the people who have those skills. So I, if I'm running a tour company, for example, and I want to know about, uh, if I know I have a client who's really interested in the history of boat building, then I, as the operator, can contact a boat builder from the inventory and say, hey, what if we did a session, we come to your, your boat building shed for an hour and you talk about boat building, then I will, uh, I will add that on to that fee on to my, what I'm charging my client, and then we'll, we'll work out this private arrangement. So it feels, um, it would feel a bit more spontaneous to the tourist, perhaps, but that the knowledge holder is still being reimbursed for their, for their knowledge. Natalie, you did something really interesting with your last episode of the podcast, and I'm going to play it now, and then we're going to talk about it. Welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. This is the final episode of a special series about the Backloo Trail region of Newfoundland and Labrador. Join us as we explore the hidden gems of the Backloo Trail, from stories of phantom ship sightings to local art and history. I'm your host, Natalie Dignam. In this episode, I'm taking listeners behind the scenes of this project to talk about how I created this podcast series from home. I'm going to talk about interviewing techniques, equipment, and how to set up your own podcast online. Initially, the Hidden Gems of the Backloo Trail series was going to include on-site interviews. I would have traveled along the Backloo Trail to interview participants and capture video footage and photographs, but the COVID-19 pandemic ruled out that possibility of in-person field work pretty quickly. Without field work, I also had to reimagine what my podcast would sound like. Before you start recording your own podcasts, listen to a bunch of different types of podcasts. Do you want your podcast to be an interview-based show like the Living Heritage Podcast? Or do you want your episodes to include casual conversations that are largely unscripted? Some podcasts, like some of my favorite history shows, are just one person reading a script. Hey, that's what this episode is. Anyway, radio shows or podcasts that piece together multiple interviews, music, and sounds to convey a story require much more editing to create an episode. For this series, 
I landed on a basic interview structure that required minimal editing. I decided to complete my interviews virtually through phone calls and over Zoom. Even if I was sitting in my bedroom, or more often, a closet, to try to get the best sound quality, I knew I could still make these interviews engaging by relying on good interviewing techniques. So what do you need to complete a good interview? First off, research your subject. This might not be as necessary if you are interviewing a family member you know well about their life. In all other cases, try to learn as much about your interviewee and their career as you can. Often, I think up an idea for a podcast episode and think I know the story I want to tell. Then I learn new information about my interviewee and the story changes. For example, I interviewed musician Andy Irvine on episode 125 of the Living Heritage podcast. In 2018, Irvine was performing at the Newfoundland and Labrador Folk Music Festival. I assumed the story would be about his career as a folk musician. But as I watched a video interview of Irvine at a music festival where he told a reporter that he didn't consider himself a folk musician, but simply a musician who draws from musical traditions from all over the world, in the interview, I asked Irvine how he would describe himself as a musician and how his travels inspired his music. That episode turned out to be more about Irvine's identity as a global musician and traveler than as a champion of Irish folk music. My second tip is to find a quiet location to make your interviewee feel comfortable. What I learned from doing virtual interviews was that my interviewees were more often much more comfortable because they were in their own space in their homes, but I had a lot less control over that space. I called a good friend who works in public radio and podcasting and complained about creaky chairs and phones ringing during my interviews. Her suggestion was to be more assertive and clear about what kind of space your interviewees should sit in for the interview. When you're in person, you can ask to move to a quiet room where you won't be interrupted. If you're doing an interview over a computer or phone, give your interviewees suggestions. Bedrooms are generally very quiet, and rugs and blankets can lessen echo. Also, if you're interviewing over a laptop, try putting a towel or blanket underneath your computer to lessen the sound of echo off the hard surface of a table or desk. And for making interviews more comfortable, body language is very important. Sit down and angle your chair towards your subject, listen to what they are saying instead of thinking about your next question, and don't be afraid of silence. Giving your interviewee time to think or complete their thoughts makes for a better interview, and you can always edit out awkward silences in your recording. When it's virtual, I actually found it uh, really tough to do phone interviews because I couldn't make eye contact or see my interviewees. Um, so I ended up relying a lot more on video interviews like Zoom because it was much easier to read body language over video interviews. Lastly, I usually make a list of subjects that I'm interested in talking about. I don't make a list of specific questions because it makes the conversation sound stilted. Instead, I try to touch on the subjects I brainstormed and also listen really well to what my interview is saying so I can follow up with different questions. For me, this is the hardest part of interviewing because I need to focus on listening while also keeping relevant questions in the back of my mind. I've become a bit better at this with a lot of practice, uh, so the conversation flows a lot more smoothly and naturally. I also want to talk about what kinds of equipment you will need. Many researchers and reporters have much more sophisticated equipment than myself, but for the beginning podcaster, a laptop and USB microphone is all you need. Initially, I had hoped to record this series using the studio at CHMR 93.5 FM at Memorial University and a mic and digital recorder from when I was in the field. However, uh, the university's campus uh, was closed to the pandemic, so I couldn't access the studio or all that equipment I wanted to use. 
Working in the studio is awesome because the room and equipment are built to make your recording sound the best it can be. So it's quiet, it's lined with uh, rugs on the walls sometimes, um, to, there's no echo, you have like complete control of the sound. Um, so if you're in the St. John's area, you can record and air your own show at CHMR for a small fee because they're a community radio station. So I definitely recommend checking that out if that is uh, an option for you. Learning how to use a soundboard, mics, and recording equipment was really fun. Um, the only drawback of the studio is that all that equipment can be a bit nerve-wracking for guests who have never been in a recording studio before. So you definitely have to put in a bit more effort to make sure that your guests are at ease. For recording in the field, there are a lot of choices of mics and reasonably priced digital recorders. Many reporters use omnidirectional mics because they are very versatile. These mics are good at picking up voices as well as ambient sound like a nearby stream, the sound of ocean waves, or other sounds to give your recording a sense of place. There are also many mics that plug directly into smartphones that are easy to use, and these are becoming much more popular with reporters because they can save all of their digital recordings right to their smartphone. For this series, I recorded calls on my phone, or I recorded Zoom videos and used a USB microphone that plugged directly into my laptop. I edited all my interviews on Audacity, which is a free audio editing software. I also found some pretty hilarious ways to record my episodes to get better sound quality. You might not notice these noises in your everyday life, but running water, the humming of your fridge, and the echo of sounds off of hard surfaces like tabletops and desks can all ruin your recording. Bathrooms are the worst of all because hard tiles and the running water will both sound much louder than you anticipate. So what is the home podcaster to do? Small spaces with soft surfaces and no household appliances are best. At the start of the pandemic, I was watching a video of Ira Glass recording an episode of This American Life in a closet in his home. Uh, one thing I found funny was that he wasn't wearing shoes. Um, so he was really trying to have no echo, have, be surrounded by like soft materials to record, uh, to record to get the best sound quality. So I thought I'll try that out. It didn't really work because my closet isn't big enough. Um, my friend also suggested that I make a blanket fort and record, uh, which was way too stuffy. I could not breathe and record at the same time. Um, I also record while sitting inside a cardboard box, which actually worked out really well, and I had great sound quality inside the box. As I said before, you can simply put a towel underneath your computer and record at a desk, and uh, that will produce a bit more bit better sound quality. So the last thing I want to talk about in this episode is how to share your podcast with the world. Uh, there are a few different sites you can sign up for that are free. Anchor and Podbean are two. Um, they're easy to use platforms. So if you want your podcast to show up on streaming services like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, both these platforms um, have instructions of how to submit your podcast to these outlets so that people can find it in all different um uh, streaming services. On all my podcast creations, I like to pick theme music and have a simple intro text that I read every time, as well as an extra text to sign off. I love using local music with permission or finding free music that has the Creative Commons copyright online. Make sure you are using music that has a Creative Commons copyright or you have permission to use that music on your podcast, so you can't just take your favorite song and make it your podcast intro, even though that would be very nice. So that is a quick recap about how you can create your own podcast from home. 
Uh, I hope you found this helpful and you've enjoyed listening to the Living Heritage podcast. I'd like to thank the Harris Center at Memorial University, CHMR 93.5 FM, and Heritage NL for making the production of Hidden Gems of the Backload Trail series possible. Thank you, and I'm Natalie Dignam. That was really interesting because it wasn't just highlighting some of the people along the Buckalo Trail, but it was essentially giving somebody a bit of a how to to continue doing this work. Uh, where did the idea come from? Um, I think a huge part of this project was working with uh, CHMR, which is a community radio station. And the whole idea behind a community radio station is that anyone can come in and uh, be part of that station and get their stories and thoughts and programs and music on the airwaves. So I think that's really having worked in public radio and community radio, that is um, just a, a big part of how I approach the the work I've done in radio. And I really think with the technology we have now, especially with COVID, uh, you know, I found myself just cut off from even using the studio and I just had to use what I had in my apartment. I want other people to feel capable of uh, trying to do something similar. And just like you were saying, uh, I think I created this with the people I interviewed in mind, if they wanted they themselves to share the work that they're doing or try to connect with more people. Um, I think it's just a tool that can be very low cost or free and is a great way to get information out there. And I want, I also really want people to be more aware of community radio. I've really loved being part of that. And uh, I would love other people to be part of that as well. But I also want to say, like, I learned a lot from the people I talked to. Like, I loved that uh, a lot of operators are now taking advantage of Instagram Live to just share little updates or um, little interviews or talking. I think that's such a cool thing that has come out of COVID. So there are a lot of ways that don't cost any money for people to kind of build a community or connect with people interested in what they're doing. You know, uh, lately we've been actually having a lot of conversations around the lack of local media. Um, we are in the middle of the election here. It's problem for obvious reasons. Uh, but we are also hearing from the regions how difficult it is to simply share information around events, around simple things like the baseball league, right? So community radio is a really fascinating medium in Canada because it does allow for a non-profit, volunteer-operated mostly, radio station that really caters to the needs of the region. And, and I'm, I'm so glad that both of you work with CHMR because um, it's, just, it's just such a treasure to have in the province. I think we're seeing communities... Um you know, feel that lack and, and getting more active with community radio. You know, I know in Bay Roberts now there's a community radio station on the peninsula and Bell Island has had a community radio station in the past. So uh, I think it, I think it is something that um, that people are hungry for. I, I know even the local uh, cable television network outside of St. John's, the, the Eastlink cable network. It's a really important way for people to share information and get get some of those local stories that I think um, they're not they're not hearing. 
Um, I, I think the fact that we're a lot of our newspapers in the province are now kind of owned by a, a media company that's not based in the province. Um, and, and we're seeing less and less local news, especially in, in a rural context. I think people really are hungry. And so projects like Natalie's or, you know, projects that put um, things online for people are, are increasingly more important for rural communities. And one more question for both of you. We always hear about these and this is not specific to Newfoundland, it's happening around the world, we hear about these grand tourism strategies and unique selling propositions for the regions and places. And somehow, what I, we always forget that all of that hinges on people doing interesting things. And that's part of the reason why I love the two projects that you two worked on, because it highlights, instead of giving you the grand tourism strategy for the region, it actually highlights those specific skill sets. Dale, I know this is your bread and butter in many ways, but why do we need to start paying more attention to that intangible cultural heritage and tangible cultural heritage for that matter? Uh, what is that it's giving us, not just here in Newfoundland, but pretty much anywhere? Yeah, I think it really gives us a sense of what is local. We, we see the impacts of globalization all the time, and some of that is positive, but even I think from a Newfoundland and Labrador perspective, sometimes we uh, we tend to generalize culture in a way. And for me as a folklorist, what is always fascinating is how, um, how variable uh, culture is, even from town to town. Uh, like in Newfoundland, we see that all the time that you know, local expressions and accents and local stories differ uh, from one place right down to the next. Uh, traditions like boat building, for example, you know, a boat that is uh, typical in one community might be very different from a boat that's typical in another, and they might have very different language to describe that. Um, and I think that uh, that difference is is important, and it's really interesting. Uh, you know, if we're talking about a tourism perspective, I think that's what people are really fascinated by. They they love feeling like they're in on something a little secret, perhaps, and they they like to feel like, oh, we're kind of the same, but oh, here's this interesting thing that you do that I've never experienced uh, in my community where I come from. So I think that is that is part of it. I, I think the other thing is that um, these days, traditional knowledge is becoming more and more important, especially when we look at things like uh, climate change and food security. You know, local knowledge about how we react to local conditions is really, really important. Um, so some of that traditional knowledge around food preparation and preservation, you know, how we deal with the environment and how we've dealt with it in the past. Um, I think those are becoming increasingly important skills uh, to know. And um, I think that we have a lot to learn from the way that people interacted with their environment in the past, that maybe a generation or so of us have have kind of forgotten we've gotten very urbanized and all our food comes from a supermarket and we don't understand that chain of of uh production um so i think uh, uh, looking at 
uh, intangible cultural heritage through that lens is is hopefully going to be one of the the ways that we learn to deal a little bit better with cultural and climate uh, change as it as it continues to probably accelerate. Natalie, I see you nodding a lot. <laughs> I just love how uh, Dale brought in. Um, you know, like the environmental change that we're experiencing now. And I, I feel like I've experienced so much overlap, even in doing this project and with the work I do with the Conservation Corps, I got to go out and uh, do a volunteer day with the Newfoundland Pony Society. And that became um, its own episode on the series. And I was just a really, I just loved it. And I think that's what Dale's talking about when you want to have one of those experiences where you're really just learning something new or transported. I was out with uh, a few other folks from the Conservation Corps and an intern who was also not from Newfoundland. And for us, like, I don't know, when I learned about Newfoundland ponies, I was so excited about it. And then, like, meeting them, I was like, man, I couldn't have done this anywhere else. Like, it was my favorite thing that I did as part of this episode, but also something that really showed me uh, a lot of these skills are endangered, but also these like beautiful animals, like the one I imagined, like, oh, they just couldn't be here, but things change and we can support the skills and uh, like amazing endangered animals like Newfoundland ponies in different ways so that they can continue to make Newfoundland like this unique, special place to be and that even through interviewing people, I really felt like transported to a lot of really cool experiences, whether I was like hiking with Barb Parsons Suli or um, talking about the Newfoundland ponies. Like, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And I really feel like those experiences are what makes um, a place special and interesting and exciting. What's next for you? For me? Yes. Oh, getting a Newfoundland pony. No, I'm just kidding. I wish. <laughs> you can put it in my backyard. I will, I am totally down for that. They were a hundred. I was like, I, they were just beautiful and they would just come right up to you. And I was like, I want one. And they were totally going to let me adopt one. And I was like, well, I live in an apartment <laughs> with no yard. So uh, maybe not now. But um, yeah, I think the work I'm focusing on now is uh, doing work the Conservation Corps, and I've really enjoyed connecting with people doing a lot of conservation work, either cultural or environmental, and I think as Dale pointed out so well, it really overlaps so much, so it's been so far a great experience, and looking forward to continuing. Dale, what's the next interesting thing we can expect from you? Well, I'm going to be fencing off a section of my backyard for Natalie's pony. I think that's first uh, priority. And then um, the work that uh, we're going to be, we are starting now with Heritage NL. We have a two-year project that we're working on around traditional skills. And, and so half of, the, half of that work will be around um, kind of traditional architecture. So carpentry and masonry and window making and using local materials. And then the other half is going to be on more uh, kind of craft uh, related skills. And some of those might be more industrial like uh, coopering or blacksmithing or tinsmithing. Um, and so the idea is that we start to uh, build, uh, you know, a skill set, uh, you know, skills that used to exist here that we've started to lose 
um, because we want to maintain what we have. So we want people to continue to be able to live and work in the places where they are um, and uh, repair their, their buildings in a green kind of locally friendly way. Uh, so I think that's going to be that's going to be very, very exciting work for me over the next two years. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. That was my conversation with Dale Jarvis and Natalie Dignam. We provided a bunch of links in the notes, so feel free to explore the Bacaloo Trail on your own. Go on your own little adventure. You just listened to Rural Roots, a Harris Center podcast about all things rural. I produced the show in St. John's, Newfoundland. The show was originally supported through our Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council grant and through a partnership with Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership. For more episodes, subscribe to the podcast or visit www.ruralrootspodcasts.ca. That's www.ruralrootspodcasts.ca. I am Boyan Fierst.